0: This is the third part of our series on Galatians, and I'm doing the whole of chapter two today. So there's a lot to pack in, but I promise you'll all be home by three. Maybe sooner, we'll see how we go. Um, just, just before we start, let's get up to speed with where we've come from so far, because it's been a couple of weeks since we last had a, a Sunday morning together. The um, story so far in Galatians, we've got Paul writing to the church in Galatia, where we've had these Judaizers, these people who've infiltrated the truth of the gospel with false teaching relating to the need to still follow Jewish law, Jewish practice, Jewish customs after people have been saved by Christ. Things like circumcision, things like food laws, all those sorts of things. These Judaizers are saying, even though you've been saved by Jesus, you still need to follow these laws, even if you're a Gentile, especially if you're a Gentile, you need to do these things. So in week one, Chris C B spoke to us on verses one to ten in chapter 1, and we saw Paul asserting his authority as an apostle. We saw him setting out the gospel again, emphasizing it's a gospel of grace through Christ alone. We saw him warning against the distortions, his pinpricks. Remember that analogy he had about the, uh, the condom, which is one that we'll never forget, uh, that undermined the truth of the gospel. Um, and just reminding people that the people who weren't here that week are like, what? <laughs> Listen to the tape uh, when it's out on the, uh, on the website. Uh, and reminding us that nothing needs to be added or subtracted from the gospel. And in week two, a couple of weeks ago, Matt preached to us on uh, the second half of chapter one, where Paul recounts his radical conversion, his experience of going from death to life in the gospel and landing some big punches. Firstly saying, you know, the gospel, this gospel isn't formed in Jerusalem. It's, it's a gospel that goes beyond nationalistic boundaries. It's not a gospel that relies on, on the law uh, and also saying it's not a gospel that is taught by man, it's not a gospel that is man-made, it's, it's a God-given gospel. So they're the, they're sort of the, the battles and fights, the punches uh, that, that Paul's landed so far. This week, we're going to see Paul again scrapping, fighting for the gospel um, in a few different ways. Um, do you want to click on, Guy? Um, he's going he's to have three different types of, of battles this week. We're going to see... Um, a defensive battle, a heavyweight battle, and then some real heavy theological blows. And really, the, the way this, this chapter is formed, the, the first half, the first sort of 14 verses, I'm going to rattle through them a little bit today because they're the sort of the narratives that set up what comes at the end, which is some really weighty theology. I'm not going to be able to get through every little bit of theology this morning. There's just so much in There's a really, really rich passage. I could do a whole series on this chapter alone, but we'll try and touch on the key points and see what we can get out of it. let's read through the passage together, and then we'll have a crack on. So 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. But we did not give up on, give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you were a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing law, but by faith in Jesus Christ so we too have put our faith in jesus christ that we may be justified by faith in christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law no one will be justified if while we seek to be justified in christ it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners does that mean that christ promotes sin absolutely not if i rebuild what i destroyed i prove that i am a lawbreaker for through the law i died to the law so that i might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Okay. So remember, Paul is fighting this battle against the Judaizers who are seeking to make obedience to the Jewish law a necessary piece of of salvation, of justification. They're trying to enforce these customs such as circumcision on people who have come to faith. So what Paul does first in in this first part of the chapter, verses 1 to 10, is he tells a story uh, which relates back to Acts 15 of where uh, there was a bit of a council of, of of the leaders in the early church and they were responding at that council to, to, this, to the initial um, battle with the Judaizers. The people are saying, you've got to be circumcised. It doesn't matter if you've accepted Jesus or not. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow these Jewish laws. Now, Paul, don't forget, up until now, hasn't been in Jerusalem much. Matt, Matt told us that the other week. Um, he's been all over the place. He's been in Antioch. He's been in Syria. He's been in Silesia. He's not been hanging out with the other d- disciples. He's been going to the Gentiles with the gospel but he feels compelled to go to Jerusalem now and defend what he's been doing. And it is a defensive thing. A vital part of boxing is defense. It's great to have a good, a good powerful punch, but you've got to be able to defend yourself from what comes from the opponent. If you don't defend yourself, then you're susceptible to that, to that knockout blow. And what Paul does, he goes to Jerusalem, he takes with him Barnabas, and Barnabas is a Jew, person just like Paul who's come from a Jewish background but Barnabas has been with Paul and he's seen Paul ministering to Gentiles and he's seen Gentiles saved he's seen the Holy Spirit poured out on Gentiles he knows that the gospel goes to the Gentiles and he also takes with him Titus and Titus is not a Jew Titus was a Gentile by background um but he's he's been saved he's met Jesus he's he's the Holy Spirit poured into him and Paul has made him a leader in the church and he goes with his people to this conference, and he just defends himself. He doesn't go on the attack. He doesn't criticize anyone. He just says, listen, the accusations are coming in that people need to follow the Jewish law after salvation. Listen, let me tell you what I've been doing. I'm just going to lay it out before you. This is the gospel I've preached. This is, this is the result of what happened. And he says in verse 2, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles because I wanted to be sure I wasn't running and, had, and have not been running my race in vain that's all he does. He just defends himself. He says, this is what I've been doing. Let me know what you think. If this is a problem, if I've been getting this wrong, by all means, tell me. Are we all on the same page here? Are the Gentiles allowed into this gospel or not? Do I have your blessing? He doesn't criticise circumcision. Don't forget, Paul would have been circumcised himself. The, The issue of circumcision itself is not a problem necessarily. Circumcision was something that Jews did, and Paul isn't saying circumcision is bang wrong. It's a terrible thing you mustn't do it. He's just saying, don't make circumcision uh, a the, the issue of salvation. Don't make circumcision something that saves you. It's that's not what it's meant to be. It never was meant to be. It's simply a sign of the covenant with God that the Jews had. Don't make this something that that hangs on salvation. And we see what happens in this in these verses is that Paul receives the blessing of the apostles. He said, Look, fair enough. Clearly, clearly, this gospel is for the Gentiles. They can be saved. They don't need to be circumcised. We agree with you. And Titus, who came as an uncircumcised Gentile to that conference, leaves as an uncircumcised Gentile to that conference. All Paul does is defend himself, and, and he wins that battle. One of the key things in that passage, though, is that at this point in time, this, this is some years before he's speaking to the Galatians, Peter was also at that conference, and Peter is very much on the same page as Paul at this moment in time. Peter has just had the experience of you know the story of the the sheets being lowered down down from heaven with all the food on it and and God saying to him, get up, go kill it and eat. Basically the removal of Jewish food laws and customs uh, through the gospel. You don't need to obey this anymore. The gospel is open to everyone. You don't have to put these Jewish laws on on other people. Peter's just had that experience. He's gone to Cornelius' house with a load of Gentiles. He's eaten with them and he's seen the Spirit come in power on these people. He's seen Gentiles saved en masse. And so Twice in Acts, in Acts 11 and Acts 15, we see Peter passionately preaching that the gospel is for the Gentiles. It's not just for the Jews. It's open to everyone. You can all, all partake of this. And so, at this moment in time, in, in this conference in Jerusalem, Peter and Paul are on the same page. They're on the same page. We're all saying, "Yeah, the gospel is for everyone. You don't need to follow Jewish law once you are saved uh, by Christ." So that's the first part. Defense defends himself. Defends his gospel. Everyone's happy. Then we move on to the second part, another little story. And now that the, the action moves to Antioch. And this is where Paul has a heavyweight battle. Remember what I've just said. Paul and Peter, back in Jerusalem, were on the same page. Now all of a sudden in Antioch, we see them have a, a bit of a falling out. And it's a, it's a heavyweight battle. Paul versus Peter, two of the, the absolute pillars of the early church going head to head. Now I've, I've picked a couple of these things. Some of the old uh, heavyweight boxing matches of the, the 60s and 70s. Muhammad Ali against George Foreman, the rumble in the jungle. And uh, Muhammad Ali against Joe Frazier, a thriller in Manila. Well, what we have here, guy, is it's an Antioch out. Come on. Come on. Listen, I spent 20 hours doing this preacher, 18 hours coming up with that joke, an hour laughing at it, and then an hour for the rest. I was expecting more than that. (laughs) Come on, Matt. That's a good one, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> yeah oh dear i've gone to the wrong person so what we've got here is paul versus peter remember peter earlier on has been a staunch defender of the gospel going to the gentiles he's come to visit paul in antioch and there's loads of gentile uh, Gentiles said gentile converts and peter's quite happy to eat with these guys and say yep yeah, you're part of the christian church you've accepted jesus i'm going to eat with you there's no boundaries don't need to worry about the jewish law i'll eat with you happy days and then suddenly james arrives and he brings with him uh, what's referred to as the circumcision group. These are the guys. These are those Judaizers who are saying, "No, you still need to be circumcised. Doesn't matter if you accepted Jesus. You still need to be circumcised if you're going to uh, be saved, if you're going to be justified." And Peter says, "Oh, oh yeah, um, oh yeah. I better not, better not annoy these guys. Um, I better stop eating with the Gentiles. Um, I need to need to stick with the Jewish guys here. James isn't going to be happy if he sees me eating with the Gentiles. So he pulls away and uh, and, and he starts ignoring the Gentiles." And Paul is not about to stand for this. He's not having it, and he's got no airs or graces about it as well. Paul doesn't pull Peter aside for a cup of tea. He says, "Listen, Peter, I just want to—I just want to challenge you about something. I just—I just feel God staring me to just—just just have a word. I think you might have got this wrong." He doesn't pull him into a side room and issue a stern lecture or ticking off. He doesn't even wait until he's gone and then send him a letter and saying. Listen, it was great having you at Antioch, but I noticed some stuff while you were there. Um, here's what I think, and this is why you're wrong. Now, Paul stands up to Peter in front of everyone and gives him a very, very public dressing down. He says, I, I said to Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So how is it that you suddenly want to enforce Jewish customs on Gentiles? I, I imagine Paul almost like a scouter in this situation, a straight-talking scouter. Hey, Peter! Give your head a wobble, right? You've got this bang wrong. I'm not having it. Why does he go for such a public ticking off, a public battle? I think it's because he recognizes the weight of authority on Peter. He recognizes the influence and the power that Peter has in the early church, and he knows that if this is allowed to stand, then other people will follow and get get it wrong too. We even see in the passage um, that... uh, other jews join peter in his apocrisy. they saw what he was doing they thought yeah he's got this spot on we better, we better follow peter because you know don't want to annoy peter and paul's like no i can't let this stand i'm going to tell you in front of everyone you've got this wrong the gospel is for everyone it's not just for jews you don't need to be circumcised if you've come to know jesus so that's that's the setup these two these two stories of paul standing up for the gospel for the Gentiles, standing up for the gospel for everyone. You don't need to follow Jewish law. You don't need to follow Jewish custom once you are saved by Jesus. And that's what leads us to um, the third part of the passage. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And I've been a bit naughty. I've gone for a three-point sermon, but my third point's got three sub-points. I'm really sorry. Um, what Paul does here, he gives us a theology behind the arguments that he's been having. And he lands three very, very important theological blows in this, in, this, in this boxing match. Paul's key concern is making sure that everyone knows the gospel is for everyone. He wants to protect those people who've come to faith as Gentiles from, from any uh, obligation to follow Jewish law. And so he lands these blows. And the three blows um, are, number one, that the law cannot save us. Number two, that only faith in Jesus can save us. And justify us and that three living legalistically makes a mockery of the sacrifice that jesus has made for us so the first point the law cannot justify us well i think the first question to ask is what was wrong with the law what's the problem what is the problem with what the judaizers are doing because does it really matter in, in other parts of the gospel of the, the new testament we see paul actually saying do you know what i'll be all things to all men you know, if it, if it saves people from getting offended, if it saves people from stumbling, I'll adopt some local customs and practices. I'll, I'll I'll do what they do just to make them comfortable. I don't want that to be a block between them and the gospel. So why doesn't he do the same here? Why Why is he so keen to avoid that happening here? Well, it's because he knows that local customs and practices are one thing, but if they're stopping people from seeing that salvation is through Jesus alone, then that's the problem. And I'm going to steal an illustration here from John Piper, who's a great American preacher. He's got a fantastic website where you can access all sorts of resources. But he gives a really helpful picture of of what the issue is with with the law. Because I think we we very easily fall into a trap in modern day of saying, law bad, Jesus good. Law bad, Jesus good. Law bad, Jesus good. But actually, the law was God-given. And we know that God doesn't give bad things. And Christ validates the law. So I want you to imagine the law as a railway track. Okay, a railway track for the Israelites to follow of obedience to God. Okay, and on that railway track, the Israelites are a carriage, and the engine is God's grace to them. And the engine pulls the Israelites along the carriage along the tra- this track of obedience to God. And the coupling between the carriage and the engine is faith. By having faith in God, the Israelites were pulled along this track of obedience, and that was how it's supposed to be. The track is there to guide the Israelites towards God. It's not there to save them. It's not there to be the thing that pulls them along. God pulls them along with his grace through their faith. But the track is there to guide them towards a right relationship with God. The law wasn't meant to be a bad thing. It was meant to be a helpful thing to help them follow God faithfully. If a law was broken and a sleeper was pulled out of the track, it's okay. The train can still move along the track. It's still pulled by God. The track doesn't become broken completely by one or two laws being broken. But the law was meant to be a delight. And we see some quotes there from Psalm 119. King David understood the law exactly how it was supposed to be. Psalm 119 is a passionate love song to the law. He meditates it. He longs for more of it. He says, the laws are good. I delight in your law. Your laws are righteous. Oh, how I love your law. The law isn't meant to be a bind or a burden. It's meant to be something that helps relationship with God. He even says at one point, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought your precepts. The law is meant to be freeing. It was meant to enable relationship with God. That is not the interpretation of the law that Paul is fighting against here. Paul is fighting against a wrong interpretation of the law. And it's the the interpretation that he himself, in part, has been responsible as a Pharisee for bringing about to distort what the law was supposed to be. It's an interpretation of the law that makes law something about human achievement, human uh, rules and regulations that create a hierarchy of of obedience to God and that being the thing that justifies and and saves us. The way the law has been interpreted and enforced by the Pharisees is made... Salvation and justification, all about good works, all about a tick list uh, of obeying the law. It's a subtle difference, but it's important. It's a bit like you know that common misconception that when people say, oh, money is the root of all evil. Well, actually, the Bible says love of money is the root of all evil. Yeah? We're similar here. We're not saying the law is bad, but we're saying turning the law into a checklist of Uh, hierarchical obedience to God, that is where it becomes a problem. The best way to understand this, and this is where this illustration is really helpful, what the Pharisees have done is they've taken that train track and they've stood it on its end and turned it into a ladder to heaven. That man needs to try and climb step by step, step by step, law by law, obedience by obedience to get to God. And the better you are obeying the law, the closer you are to God. That is what the Pharisees have done. That is what Paul is fighting against. And upward travel on that ladder is all about, it's not about being pulled along by God's grace through faith. It's all about obedience. It's all about ritual. It's all about sacrifice. It's all about what I can do as a human being to climb this ladder to God. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That is not what it's there for. And of course, every time a rung, every time a law is broken, every time a rung breaks on that ladder, it's even harder to get to God. That is what Paul is fighting against. That's what he's saying you're doing. That the people are doing by by after after salvation through Jesus, saying you still need to be circumcised. You still need to eat the right kind of food. You still need to do this. You still need to do that. Salvation is still becoming about climbing that ladder. And Paul is saying, no. I don't know if you've ever to bring it into a modern day example. I don't know if you have ever met someone who said to you, and I've had this so many times. Oh, I I don't really go for the whole God thing, but. I think I'm a good person and I I do good things and I'd like to think if if God is real then he'll see that I'm good and the good things that I've done and he'll probably let me into heaven that's that's the kind of modern day example of this that salvation justification is all about climbing that ladder doing the good deeds showing how good we are and that's not what it's about because it has no recognition of the fact that God is perfect God is holy, and that no matter how hard we try to climb that ladder with our good works and our obedience, we can never get to the top. We can never match up to God's standards. Because God doesn't demand good. He demands perfect, and we can't do that. We can't climb that ladder ourselves. We will fail. I'll put the next one on. So when we, when we walk into God's courtroom and he looks at us, he sees us with all our sin, because as we measure up against the law, as we measure up against the standards, we can't meet them and he sees us as sinful. And that word justification, which is so important this morning, to be justified means to have right standing with God. It means to be, to be able to stand in front of God and saying, yeah, I'm not guilty, I've got right standing. And when we try and just to compare ourselves to the law, when we try and compare ourselves to obedience to moral law and code... We can only be judged guilty. We can only be judged as not justifiers. He can only see our sin and say, I'm sorry, you've not met the standard. We will fail. So that's the first part. We can't be justified by the law. We can only be declared sinful by it. That's the first theological blow he lands. The second one is that only Jesus, only Jesus can justify us. How does he do it? As I said, we talk about this ladder to heaven. We we keep trying to climb this ladder. Paul's Paul's opponent is saying, You've got to climb this ladder. You've got to climb this ladder to get up to heaven. And and as as we try and do those things post conversion, that's all we're trying to do. When actually, guess what? Jesus has already come down the ladder to us. Jesus has already come down to to earth and said, Guys, you're not going to get up there. I'm going to have to come down to you, I'm going to have to sort you out myself. What are you doing trying to climb that ladder up there? I'm down here, guys. I'm right here. You can meet me. Love came down that ladder. But this is what we keep wanting to do. The Bible says, if you confess Jesus, if you believe in him, if you believe in him, then you are saved. And we're like, oh, but is, is this not something else I can do just to prove myself? Is there not something else I can do just to, I just like that feeling of having done it myself. I just like that feeling of having achieved something myself. That's what these Judaizers were like. They didn't. They weren't comfortable with the fact that their salvation was nothing to do with them. They wanted to be able to turn around and say, look what I've done. I've obeyed this, I've obeyed that, and my salvation is based on that. But that's not what Paul tells us. Do you want to skip on one, please, and another one. That's it. What Jesus comes down and does for us is to fulfil the law in its entirety. Himself, he says in Matthew five seventeen. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, but I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Jesus knows, God knows, that we cannot possibly fulfil the law and be be declared justified. He knows that but he also knows that he can. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived who has fulfilled every last bit of the law. Every eye, every T, every eye dotted, every T cross, Jesus fulfilled the law in perfect, sinless obedience. And then he died a death through that perfection to take the punishment for our failure to obey ourselves. And then he rose again and beat death to declare victory for us over the law. And that is why, in the passage, Paul is so angry when it when it's when when it's suggested that following Jesus means that it promotes sin. That following Jesus somehow means, well, we failed. If we follow Jesus, we started lowering the law. Then, then we're guilty again, aren't we? Well, no. Following Jesus means the law is fulfilled. It's done with. We don't need to apply to it anymore. We don't need to worry about it. Because of Jesus, this is our standing before God now. This is our standing before God now. When He looks at us in His courtroom. He doesn't see a sinner. He sees the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. And if we're still in the shadow of that cross, all God sees is perfection. All God sees is righteousness. All God sees is, is, is the law fulfilled because we are hidden in Christ. We might be sinful ourselves, but we know that Jesus is not sinful. And so we're able to stand there and God's able to say, do you know what? I can't see your sin. I can see a perfect sinless saviour who died to take your punishment and you are justified because of that. Not because of anything you've tried to obey yourself, not because you've kept X number of laws, not because you've lived a good life. I declare you're justified because Jesus died for you. That's the heavy theological blow that hit poor lands. Justification isn't through the law, justification is through Christ alone. And in verses 19 and 20, Paul uses the phrase, through the law I died to the law. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by through the law I died to the law? The second part is simple. If you imagine the law like a kind of, if you imagine playing hide and seek almost, and you're hiding from the law, the law wants to come and tell you that you're sinful. The law is brilliant and telling you that you're sinful. It's brilliant at it. And it will seek you out and try and say, you failed here, you failed there, you failed there, you failed there. You're You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And we've got no, we've got no uh, defense against that. But Paul says, when the law comes looking for me, when it comes hunting for me, I'm already dead. I'm a dead man. It can't accuse me because I don't exist anymore. That part of me, that obedience to the law, that, that attempt to try and make myself justified by law, it's dead. It's gone. I can't be accused anymore because I've died to it. I'm not hiding in a cupboard that it might find me one day. I've not gone on holiday that it's going to try and chase after me. I'm a dead man. How can I be accused when I'm dead? And that is the status of anyone, anyone who has accepted Christ, you are dead to the law. The law can't touch you, the law can't accuse you anymore. But how is that death to the law, through the law? Well, as I just said, Jesus' death on the cross was a death died through the law. It was the law that put Jesus on the cross. It was our failure to fulfill the law that meant Jesus had to die for us so through the law Christ is on the cross and because Christ died to the law and because we are crucified with Christ then we have died to the law also it's complicated theology I haven't got time to really really unpack it this morning I could do a whole series on it but that's what Paul's saying there I'm dead to the law now the law can't get me I'm alive in Christ because he's fulfilled the law and because when the law looks at Jesus and tries to accuse him there's no fault there There's no blemishes, there's no failure, there's only uh, justification. And that is the joy of the gospel for everyone. The law is dead, Christ is alive in us, and we don't need to try and achieve anything before salvation or after salvation. And because salvation then is not dependent on the Jewish law, that means it is open to everyone. You don't have to be a Jewish person. You don't have to follow the Jewish moral code, Jewish law to be alive in Christ because Christ has cleared the way. He's fulfilled the law for us and that opens the gospel to everyone. And the result of that, if we, if we accept all that as true, if we accept all that as, as what's happened, then any attempt to do anything other, any attempt to live legalistically makes a complete mockery of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. This is the final knockout blow of this chapter. If we insist on continuing to try and make people obey the law and its rituals and its customs, then you set aside the grace of God himself and we nullify Christ's death. We restrict people from entering the freedom that Christ has brought for us. So if Jews and Gentiles are required to be circumcised even after they've accepted Christ, then Christ died for nothing. If Gentiles are considered unclean and are not permitted to eat with the Jews after, the, after they've already accepted Christ, then what's Christ died for? He's died for nothing. It's pointless. In John's Gospel, we're told that when Jesus was on the cross, having suffered and suffered and suffered and suffered and suffered and suffered, and suffered, and suffered, and suffered so much, all of it undeserved, all of it because of us, As he stood there pierced and bleeding and disconsolate and he breathes out his last and he cries out, it is finished. Well, according to the Judaizers, at that very moment, someone might as well pop out from behind the cross and say, actually, Jesus, uh, just pull you up on that one. It's not finished. (laughs) Uh, You still need to obey this law. You still need to obey that law. You still need to be circumcised, of course. You know, what you've done there, you've, you've, you've it's really helpful, Jesus, thank you. Very dramatic and everything. But it's not finished. You still need to obey the law. That's, that's basically what, what the Judaizers are saying. It's just, it's just crazy, isn't it? We know what Jesus went through. We know how powerful he, what, he, what he did was. And yet, that is where we're left if we still try and live to the law and live to obedience afterwards. And it's a warning for us today. We can very easily be sucked in to legalistic living. We can very easily be sucked in to trying to please God ourselves through our actions, through our deeds, through our works so that we can somehow be considered more holy, somehow be considered more justified, somehow be considered a better person, a better Christian. If I can just do this or do that, it will show God how great I am. It will show God how useful I am, how brilliant I am. No. No. We don't need to do that anymore. We don't need to try and climb that ladder to get closer to God anymore because God has come down to us in in human form and cleared the way for a relationship with him based purely on Christ's sacrifice and resurrection. We've been invited into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. And it's not to be a dreary trudge through rules and regulations. It's to be a joyful, fruitful walk with a father who loves us And a son who died for us, and a spirit who guides us. That's what it's meant to be. So, in summary, then, we are here today because Paul fought for a gospel for everyone. It's incredible importance. What Paul does in this chapter is vital for us today. He fought for our freedom. Our freedom from legalistic customs and practices. Our freedom from trying to please God and achieve salvation ourselves. From trying to somehow impress God so much that he'd declare us justified. He's freed us from that. Paul was insistent, no, I'm not having it. I'm not having it. This, Christ didn't die for that. Christ didn't die for you to be bound to rules and regulations. He died for you to have freedom through him. This whole chapter in this weighty theology is designed to reinforce that the gospel is for everyone. Everyone. No one is to be restricted or excluded by unnecessary legalism and rules. And that is why Paul has so vehemently for that fight. And if he hadn't, you know what? Christ- Christianity might never have broken out beyond a small sect of of staunch people in Jude, based in Judaism. It may never have reached these so- shores. We may never have been sat here this morning because it would have all been about law, Jewish custom, Jewish practice, and we wouldn't have been able to do it. That's how important Paul's argument was. That's how important Paul's fight was in Gala- uh, to the Galatians. And what's it mean for us? We've got two number ones there. it should be a number two. <laughs> Just before Ken picks me up on it. Um, we must continue to ensure that the gospel goes to everyone. We must not be guilty of restricting anyone from coming in to to the gospel ourselves. Jesus commanded that this gospel was to go to the ends of the earth, and we need to bring it right here in Liverpool and beyond and make sure that it's a gospel that reflects justification through faith alone, by grace alone, and in Christ alone. Now, many would have us embroiled in religious observances and rituals that maximize us and minimize Christ. It was so helpful, the, the, uh, the picture that Paul, uh, Paul, Chris, not quite that level, like Chris, <laughs> that Chris brought to us the other week. Uh, what, what are the things that we do in our walk with God? Are they to maximize Christ or, to mini- or do they minimize Christ? We need to be doing things that maximize Christ. Anything we do, that minimizes Christ and maximizes us and says that salvation and, and holiness and justification is about us, we need to, we need to shed off. And it's, it's vital in this city. Liverpool is a city with a heavily, heavily Catholic background. And we know that so much of Catholicism and, and Anglicanism to an extent as well is based in ritual, is based in penance, is based in you need to do this to get right with God, you need to do that to get right with God. If you haven't done this and you can't be right with God... And we need to stand up for this gospel that Paul stood up for and said, no. No, your salvation is secure. It's achieved in Christ, not through the the, the ladder that you climb yourself. Non-Christians regularly look at Christianity and other religions, and they write them off as boring religious practices full of rules and regulations which set man aside for salvation. But reading Galatians, we see that nothing could be further from the truth because the wonderful freeing truth of our, of our gospel our, our justification our salvation is that it's pretty much nothing to do with us it's all Jesus and that is such such an attractive thing to bring to people you don't need to do anything other than accept Christ and put your faith in him and that is how you get your right standing with God and that needs to impact on our evangelism that needs to be the core of our message it's all about Jesus You don't need to try and climb this vertical ladder to heaven. You can't do it. You'll fail. Put your faith in Jesus. That's how you'll be justified. We want to invite people to taste the gospel of freedom, the gospel of love, the gospel of grace.